Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Hi, friends and neighbors, guys and gals, everybody out in the internet world. Welcome back to Miyagi Mornings. We had a week off due to, uh, unseasonable weather for Texas. It was winter weather, but it wasn't Texas winter weather. We had, uh, temperatures down below zero. And I think one of the things people haven't realized yet as to why this was such a problem here in Texas, though it's probably not as big a problem as the TV told you it is, especially if you don't live here. Because if you'll notice, the media is really good about always hyping places that are not where you are. They do that with COVID all the time. Oh my God, Florida! Oh my, you go to Florida, it's like it's like anywhere else except it's freer. So that's what they like to do. They like to hype places that are far enough away from you that you can't see them, and they show you only the worst. So just understand that's that's what's been going on. But over a week before this plunge, most of Texas, I would say fifty percent of it at least, and Probably 75% of where people live went to or below freezing and stayed below freezing for over a week before the main front came in of a four or five day event. So we're not built down here for our infrastructure to handle that. We get freezing weather. There's no one that lives here that's like, oh gee, it froze. That's a surprise, especially in February. But Historically, the norm is we get a cold front comes in, we endure a couple, three days of freezing weather, and then the sun comes out like it's out today. And frankly, it's very hard to keep the temperature below freezing with the sun shining down here. We did do it during this event. We did have the sun come out about the second day into it, and it was melting snow and it was 9 degrees. Uh, Our sun's really intense. So that's what we're used to. And and that kind of segues into my topic today. One of the people on the MeWe thread about this, uh, Miyagi Mornings for suggestions, said, what about using this as a way to talk to friends and family about finally getting prepared? I think it's a fantastic idea, but I'm going to tell you what you don't do. You do not come at this right now with, see, I told you, or anything in that vein. Uh, I think it would be more in line with, hey, look, given what just happened, and if it happened to them, you know, it sucks, but they're probably more receptive. Or if this they saw it happen other people. I'd like to talk to you about how you can make sure if this happens again, or I would say when it happens again, because it will, that uh, you're a bit more prepared. And you can get through it without having major catastrophes, especially if they got, you know, they, they had some suffering, but it wasn't that bad. Like my son, who doesn't listen to his old man, doesn't have a generator. You know, I mean, but at least they didn't have any pipes break inside the house, create flooding or whatever. But they had a pretty miserable three or four days. Now, it turned out that uh, we had family in town, uh, his aunt, and they had an Airbnb near them that were on two different power legs. So they were literally, as power would come back on, bouncing between the two places. But they, they, they did without. So here's what I came away with this on. There were certain things that, you know, obviously as preppers we had in place, but there were three big ones 
during this particular event that I think would behoove anybody to put in place for themselves in some way, shape, or form. The first was that we had water stored, a lot of it. And probably, looking back at it now, not enough. Now, the reason, you know, if you look behind me, the Miyagi's all thought out now, the bigger Miyagi's all thought out. I got other ponds. You guys have watched my channel know we got water in a bus. We got a swimming pool with 27,000 gallons of water in it. And this goes back to there's never been a time where even with a hard freeze, I hadn't been able to come out, take a shovel, smack, 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 and then bucket water out of there for my animals. My animals use a lot of water. Most people don't have that, but if you do, you got to be prepared for it. So we were using water way faster than we would normally have done, and we had to be really careful with how much water we used. Um, because we couldn't, now if I really, really had to, I could have got the sledgehammer or the axe out and really went to town on it and I could have got down, but we had four inches of ice, four inches of ice on the Miyagi's, four inches of ice on the swimming pool is pretty freaking intense. Um, for any of y'all ask, we didn't have any damage to any of it. Nothing broke, no pipes cracked, nothing. We had a couple seppos where it pushed the dry fit pipe apart. You stuck them back together and turned them back on. Um, no fish are dead that we can see anyway. Um, tons of fish have been able to identify as alive, so it worked out. So water. And I would say that the easiest way to get people to do this is if they drink soda, two-liter bottles, or like the one-gallon jugs of iced tea or something like that. Those are the best water storage containers you can get. If you don't use them or if they don't use them, find a neighbor or somebody who does. It's not ever hard to find. And just say, save them for me and give them to me. Rinse them out really good with hot water. Maybe if you want to put a couple drops of bleach in them to sanitize them, fill them up, give them a good shake, let them dry out. You do not put bleach in them to storm. You don't need to do that, right? And fill them up with water. Because even when water came back on, all these people down here in, in one major distribution area, because of water main breaks, were on a boil water advisory, yet a lot of them didn't have electricity to boil the water with. So water, water, water. And I would say it is not overkill to figure out, like, take a five-gallon bucket, stick it in your shower, and see how long it takes to fill up a gallon of it. And then start timing your showers for everybody in the house. Start figuring out how much water you actually use. Every time you use water for about a week, keep a diary and figure out how much water you're using. Most people will shock the shit out of themselves. You need to have at least half that much. You probably won't be showering with it every day, but you need to have at least half of as much as you use in a week in storage in some way, shape, or form. And understand, I got rain catch. I got ponds. Like, it could become unavailable, which it did for us. Number two. Cooking, boiling water, etc. We have a propane stove by design. I am a chef. I like to cook. And I don't ever want to cook on an electric stove unless you make me. And then I'm unhappy while I'm doing it. So that was built in already for us. I also, though, have a little bitty camp chef stove, a propane heater, or a pro, uh, propane tanks, a grill-sized tank and an adapter to it. Had we not had a propane stove, we could have took that sucker, threw it up on a tabletop, and cooked with it just fine. You can't cook with it inside. How, you, 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 oh, my God, you people like that, right? Oh, my God, you'll kill yourself if you use a camp chef stove inside. Okay, how's it different than my freaking range we use every day? Anyway, I digress. The tank leaking is the, 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 the issue, so you're better off keeping the main tank outside going through a window because now you're really going to screech when I go next. Supplemental heat is the other thing I would talk to these people about, right? So there's actually four things. I think I said three. Supplemental heat. And I recommend that everybody have at least four grill tanks of propane. You keep them topped off at all the time, which probably means you need at least a fifth tank so that when that sucker's empty, you go get it filled up. So you don't end up in line like people did a 1,000 miles long 
getting that filled up. So you have your, your propane uh, for both your cooking and for your supplemental heat. I love the Big Buddy heater. It saved our ass during this. I've been recommending it for like 10 years. And there's so many people said it saved their ass. And so many people said, boy, I wish I would have bought one. And they went and tried to buy one like right when this all started. Like, you know, when you knew it was coming, but we weren't there yet. And they had three-week lead times on them. I bet you it'll come back in stock real fast now. I would really recommend that or having plumbed in. If you have large tanks on the outside like we do, you can plumb in some space heaters. Something to have backup heat. And the next one is a generator. And you can get a good generator. I'm like, you know, 6,000, 7,000 running watt Troy built at Home Depot for under 1,000 bucks. And then you're going to need, along with that generator, gas. And I really recommend at least 60 gallons of gasoline. And I recommend you follow my rotational gas uh, uh, methodology, which is once a month, take the can in the front of the row, put the, put the nozzle on it, and when your car or truck is empty, dump five gallons of gas in it, seal it up, put it in your car, and when you go fill the car up, fill the can up, put it at the end of the line, and just keep doing that. And if you'll notice, five-gallon cans, 60 gallons, 12 cans, every month you're rotating your gas. You don't know any stay bill. You don't need any of that. You always have fresh gas. And that will run a, a good-sized generator for quite a while, especially if you're not running it nonstop. And then some common sense. I don't know how many people had their power out but were able to keep their house warm and had the food go bad in the refrigerator and freezer while it was zero degrees outside. What is wrong with you people? So the last part of this is also just thinking through these scenarios. Think through these scenarios clearly. What will I do if this happens? Because I want to talk about stress here in a second. But here was the answer to that. You take all the shit out of your freezer, put it in garbage bags so it doesn't get messed up, throw a twist in it, and throw it in the snow. It was below zero outside. It would stay below freezing pretty much nonstop. The stuff in your refrigerator, take a cooler. Put the shit that needs to be kept cold in the cooler. Take a few handfuls of snow, whip it in there, close the cooler down, put it out on the back porch. If it starts to freeze up, bring it in the house. Now, that was easy. Now, here's what we're going to get to the last part, stress. You need to game this shit out in advance, or you're not going to be able to realize you have assets sitting right in front of you. And you need to do things like if you have a generator... I know they have a little, you know, startup procedure on it. You need to write it down so that you'll understand exactly what the startup procedure is, laminate it somehow, put it in a, a, a bag or something, big, easy-to-read writing, and attach it to your generator. And anything else, a stove that needs a startup sequence, a heater that needs, you need to have the information readily available. I don't care how many times you've done it. We learned this in the military. Stress degrades skill sets. Now, in the military, my job used to be to work on my skill sets and to work on my soldier skill sets. So we did it. You're not going to do it to the level that the military does, and the military still uses fail-safes like this for certain things. Because when you're under stress, you cannot generally repeat things with the efficiency you can. So can you get your generator started in the dark at 3 o'clock in the morning when it's 1 degree outside with a flashlight tucked into your neck? Well, I might figure out I need a headlight. That might teach you that right away. We made a mistake. I'll give you my mistake. We had our generator <clears throat> in our shop, which is generally, even in cold weather, fairly warm. We keep a space heater in there to keep the pipes from freezing up uh, in weather like this, but that's electric. And when the power went out, it was cold enough in there already that I couldn't get the generator started until the, the sun came up. And I knew what to do. I had a procedure. It was all there, but I still couldn't. It, it mechanically would not start. It was too cold. I had to drag it in the house 
and put it next to the, one of the propane heaters and let it warm up before it would start. By then, our pipes froze up. So even preppers, we make mistakes, right? We learn from that, and we're going to move on. And that's what to talk to your friends about, too. What was the most painful parts of this? Because check it out, guys, as I finish up here. I've always said we do not prepare for specific disasters. We prepare to deal without systems of support. So everything that I just said, when we have a summer blackout, helps you out. You need to add one thing to it to stay comfortable. A little high-efficiency window unit air conditioner you can pop in and take out whenever you need to. Or like us, we have a little, they're much more expensive. We have a little floor R2-D2-looking ones with a vent that goes to the window because they're easier to move around the house and not have to you know, shimmy up in a window. If you have that, you can at least take a couple doors or a couple rooms and close the doors and keep those rooms comfortable through a summer blackout. You can keep your systems running, etc. Water, again, power outages and water being contaminated go hand in hand. Power outages and water not coming to your house go hand in hand. A lot of places people don't realize this. Your water, how do you think it gets there? Do you think a magical fairy farts in the end of it with a unicorn and then it pushes water out of your faucet? It runs on electric pumps and sometimes when you're out, they're out too. We were able to get all of our systems up and running because we're on a well, so I can run the well, right? Most people can't do that. You're not going to be able to turn the water back on if it's off. So you need the water uh, in reserve and in supply. And just think about that. And if you do it, you'll realize that everything I just gave you applies for seasons. It just really applies in the winter when we get an event like this. And just take your time, assess this, and kind of prop it up. But I can't overstate the importance not just of having things, but the right mindset. And anything that has more than one step to it that you're going to have to do under stress, you're going to want to have, again, mapped out, easy to understand how to do it. You should be able to hand it to someone that doesn't know how to do it, and they should be able to do it. If you do that, and they didn't, they've never done it before, you need a, you know, kind of a, an equipment dummy, somebody that's never touched that piece of equipment before. Here, I've written this down, see if you can start it. And the last thing. And I did this, and it still bit me in the ass because it got too cold. When you have shit coming in and you know it, you take that generator, you fire it up. You take that heater, you make sure everything's working, and anything that's not working, get it ready in advance to fix. And if you have pipes that you can fix, I can't overstate this enough, you should have a whole setup of stuff that you can put those pipes back together if they break. Because sometimes even when you do everything right, you get a broken pipe. We needed to fix a pipe. I had water blowing everywhere when we got power back on. It wasn't that hard to fix because I had the parts on hand. Skating down the road sideways while idiots drive trucks that think they can drive fast just because they have four-wheel drive in the ice to go to Lowe's to get a 75-cent part because I didn't have it, that, my friends, that would be a problem. With that, let's go ahead and wrap up for today. Hey, folks, Jack Spierko here with Miyagi Mornings episode, what is it, 57? I think it's 57. Whatever it is, it's, it's that episode. Anyway, today we're going to answer a question that came in again from the MeWe group. If you want to participate in suggesting topics for Miyagi Mornings, you can email me or whatever. But the, the place that I tend to go on a daily basis and kind of scan through and say, what do I want to talk about today if I don't have something already on my mind, um, is the MeWe post that is sticky to the top of my profile at MeWe. There's a link in the video notes down there. You can click on that. You can sign up for MeWe. You can friend me up. And you can post there. And all you got to do is go to my profile, look at the top. So what we're going to answer today is a question that I get, I bet, I bet half a dozen times a month. And I bet I've answered it 50 times in 50 different ways. I'm going to try to do a 
one-size-fits-all answer for this question that everybody thinks their system is or their situation is unique, and it is: What should I grow? And then, because I want to grow, fill in the blank, and that could be trees, vegetables, summer crops, winter crops, um, bushes, berries, vines. Uh, pasture mix, cover crop, it doesn't matter. Like over and over and over you get the same questions. And this is one of those things I think that people get into this mindset of, well, like, but my place is different. My place is unique. Well, the truth is most people live in the place where most people live and your situation is not that unique. About 80% of the people in the United States live in about 20% of the land mass. So if you're part of that 80%, your situation's not that. Now, some of you live up in the, the above the northern, uh, the highest northern latitudes up above the Arctic Circle or something, or you live in the tropics. That might be a little bit different. But the, the, the solution I'm going to give you works exactly the same, no matter where you live. The key is you have to define your goals first and your wants, your needs, your desires, your likes and dislikes. So... The first thing you do is you start out with, yes, we need to fill that blank, and I want to grow trees, fruit trees, not trees, uh, ornamental trees, fodder trees, bee trees, whatever. So we define that. I want to grow vegetables. Okay, great. Uh, when? So I'm going to grow spring into summer, summer into fall, fall into winter, whatever, right? So what's the seasonality of it, and what is your climate like? And, and then the next thing is, well, what, what do you like? So... If cucumbers do really good where you are, but nobody in your house likes cucumbers for whatever reason, you're weird, you're anti-cucumber, then you, you shouldn't grow cucumbers. So look at what you like to eat. All right. Then look at your look at your USDA zones. It amazes me the biggest one is well trees. What trees can I grow? Well, where are you at? Zone seven. Pretty much anything you want in citrus. Right. And, and there might be some that are a little bit more attuned to your climate. But remember, your climate is not just a climatic zone for temperature. That's your 8765, you know, 8675309, whatever, right? Um, that will dictate your kind of your macro. Then you need to kind of look at, well, do I get a lot of rain? Do I get a little bit of rain? Are my soils primarily acidic or alkaline? How much of that can I affect change on? If you're growing a garden, you can. You know, a small backyard garden, you can have incredible influence, incredible influence on the soil. It's pH, it's mineral kind. I mean, you can you can dial it in as much as somebody running a hydro system if you really want to. You get a soil test, you can bring in supplemental nutrient minerals, you can alter pH, what have you, because you're a giant on the landscape in a garden size situation. You're putting in a two acre food forest. You're smaller than an ant on the landscape. You've moved past human scale. So now you have to accept more about what is versus what you can change. Right? On the scale of permits, we've moved ratcheted way up. The broader the landscape, the longer it takes, and the less influence we as individuals can have on it. We get into very large, broad-scale landscapes. This is why we get into livestock. Because you're not going to alter a thousand acres of topsoil and the chemistry and the compounds and whatever in it. But a thousand cattle can, and those people that think you can restore those ecosystems without li livestock—they—they're in denial of biology and chemistry. Okay, let's move back to answering this question, though. So we, we figure out kind of our limitations, 
And for perennials, if I were you, I would say, let's say I'm in zone 8, and this says hardy to zone 8. I might try it, but I wouldn't rely on it. I would ratchet down your winter side by one zone, meaning that if you are in zone 8, and you want to rely on something to be there long-term in your ecosystem that is a perennial, then you need stuff that is hardy to zone 7. If you're in zone 7, you need stuff that's hardy to zone 6. If you're in zone 6, you need stuff that's hardy to zone 5. And you can moderate this a little bit. If you're like at the edge of 8 and 9, your 8s are probably good. If you're at the bottom of 8, you really need to be looking at kind of very, very hardy into zone 7. So that's kind of where, so when you're like, well, what apple trees can I grow? Dude, what apples do you like? Go look at all the apples that are available. Make sure that they're hardy to your zone and plant the freaking apple trees. Don't make this, because this is the biggest thing. I think people are making this harder than it is. Let's talk about a cover crop. This isn't hard either, guys. Look, if it's in the summer, you can start out with like buckwheat and cowpea. If it's in the winter, you can do any kind of winter-hardy grain like triticale or rye or barley, daikon radish, purple top turnip, uh, and, and a good winter pea. That's a great mix. You can go into vetches, you, and, and whatever. Just like diversity of things, and then just you have to ask yourself, how if it's a cover crop, see, cover crop and pasture mix are different. Pasture we want to manage long-term. Cover crop we want to do a thing, go away. What is it going to take to make it go away? White kaiasota is great. Huge, huge root mass. may not want it in your garden. It will literally choke out everything, and it will probably hang on longer than you want it to. Right? But if you look at things like barley and wheat and rye, they're a lot easier to just cut them and drop them and plant into the root system, and you're not going to have much of a problem. If you're planting something in the summer, and you're going to plant a fall garden... You want something that's going to be easy to knock back when you're ready to put your fall crops in. So you just figure that out. And, and the stuff that I just gave you is a pretty good way to go. When it comes to your vegetables, what do you eat? What do you eat and what do you have a long enough growing season for? If you want to grow something that has 120 days from, from, from set out to harvest and you have a 100-day growing season, it's probably a bad choice. You might be able to pull it off with starting it inside early and putting it out and all. But, you, you know, look at, your, look at your, your growing season, and then you fit your annuals into that growing season, and can you do season extension? Some things are really easy to do season extension for because they're already somewhat tolerant and they're small. Large things are not easy to extend your season with because you have to basically build a house over top of them, right? So... One of the things I would say is, and I, I say this about so many aspects of what I teach, keep a food diary. I think we should all be journaling far more than we do because when you journal, you contemplate. And if there's anything that people in this country don't do enough of is contemplation. Everyone else will run their mouth and talk a bunch of shit about things they don't know anything about on social media. And they talk to each other in ways that if you talk to somebody like that in person, right in the freaking mouth is what you would get. It happens all the time. I see it every day. But I'll tell you a big part of it is we don't contemplate. Contemplate involves, here's this piece of information. I'm going to ruminate on it mentally and then come up with something. When you contemplate, you're less likely to be a dick to somebody because you think about what you're saying before you say it. And your goal goes from telling that person what a dumbass they are to actually being somewhat helpful if it's any way possible that you can. 
Right? If you want to convince somebody of something, telling them they're a dickhead is not a good way to get that done. Okay? So we need more contemplation. So keep a food diary. What do you eat? And then when you're making food or you're cooking and you're thinking, boy, I wish I had, add that to the list. And then what of those things can you grow? And then what is the timing to grow those things? It's that simple. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I'll continue to come out with, you know, here's five things that you never thought about growing, or here's ten herbs everybody should grow, or here's 20 new vegetable varieties to try out or whatever. That's wonderful. But in the end, when, when people ask this question, it's far more important to me that I teach you how to fish than give you a fish. Okay? Because I want you to be able to sit down with a bunch of seed catalogs or plant catalogs or go online to a nursery, and I want you to be able to examine what's there. Look at your land, look at your size, your space, your scape, your growing season, your climate, you know, how dry it is, how wet it is, can you irrigate, can you not irrigate, how deep your soils are. What, like, just look at all like, just, The reason I can't just give you a list and say, you should grow this. Somebody that, that asked this question said, I only live about an hour and a half east of you. If you live in an hour and a half east of me, you might as well live in northern Florida. It rains a hell of a lot more than it does here. Your soil's sandy, my soil's clay and alkaline. You can grow pine trees without trying. You have to put a pine tree on life support to get it to grow here. Unless it finds a micro niche. Right? You're in a totally different world than me. If you have a backyard a couple blocks from me, and your soil's four foot deep before you hit the rock formation that's under my house, you're in a totally different world than me. If you're managing a garden that's, you know, 10 4 by 8 beds that you're going to intensively manage, you're in a totally different situation than somebody that's just doing kind of uh, natural gardening. All of that will change what will do really, really well for you. And one of the best things you can do is overplant. Overplant, 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 and then identify the things that do well for you. I know, for instance, now that like the squash for me to grow in my climate and in my backyard and in my environment is Trombuccino zucchini. And I can tell you it will probably do fantastic for you because if it lives here, it'll probably live anywhere. But do you know how I found that out? Not by reading books. Because plants don't read books. The pests that prey on the plants, they don't read the books either. I, I found that out by growing like 10 different squashes over the years and saying, this is the one squash to rule them all. And I don't grow it exclusively because some disease, some pest, some thing may eventually adapt and begin to really damage it. Irish potato famine, anybody? So I keep trying other squashes because I know sooner or later either I'll find another one or as I build my soil and my nutrient profile adapts and comes up and becomes stronger, things that used to get knocked down by pests won't. So Experiment, be bold, be brave. And then the last thing, if especially growing trees for food production. What do commercial growers grow successfully within 50 miles of where you live? You want to grow pears? Does anybody grow pears commercially where you live? If the answer is no, it may be a difficult crop for you to grow. You can still try it, right? If the answer is yes, what do they grow? Call them up and ask them. Find a small you know, orchard producer that has to pick your own or whatever. Call and say, hey, what do you grow? What works best for you? They'll tell you. They don't see you as a threat. Look at what you eat. Look at what other people grow in your area. Look at the macro of your climate and go at least one back. I know people all worry about climate change. Let me tell you something. 
with the exception of it gets too hot and it, it, it scorched earth and you don't get enough water and you're not drought proofed, with the exception of that, if your climate zone is one higher this year because it had an unusually warm year, you're at seven and you got an eight, it will have almost no detrimental effect on you whatsoever. If you have stuff that is hardy to zone eight, and you get a, a winter event like we just got in Texas, which takes your low end temperature, and basically we spent a week being zone six, and you have stuff that's not hardy to zone six, it's going to die. So that's why you, sh you should hedge to the backside of your zone at least one zone. If you can do two, even better. It doesn't mean don't plant things, but... See, when it comes to perennials, you're looking at a core and the nice. And your core should be made up of things that can swing in either direction. At least one up and two down would be even better. With that, keep them coming, guys. Remember, MeWe is the place to submit content for this. Tomorrow, maybe we'll talk a little bit about, because we ain't done it yet this week, cryptocurrency and a way you can get it for free just by using some really cool websites. Take care. Hey guys and gals out in the interwebs land, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 58. Here's what I got for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. And um, for those of you experienced with cryptocurrency, 80% of this is going to be kind of really basic because I'm getting a lot of questions from people that want to get involved and they're asking those really basic questions, so I want to cover that. But a couple things might actually be beneficial to you if you don't know about them already. They're, they're basic as well, but they're, they're newer things. Um, I'm going to start out with, if you watch these videos daily on YouTube, you could be watching them on Odyssey or Library. So Odyssey and Library are basically the same thing. Library's the backbone. Odyssey's the kind of user interface that has all the cool features versus the basic features of library. And that just means that when I put a video on YouTube, my Odyssey account imports that video onto a blockchain, which is how all cryptocurrency works, but a lot of other technology works. All right, so yes, we can take tokens or coins or call them if you want to. We can tokenize them and put them on a blockchain, and that allows for the exchange of value with a ledger that can't be corrupted with things like counterfeiting. If you've ever wondered, like, well, since Bitcoin's just a number and another number, why can't you just control C, control V your way to being a multi-billionaire? Because it doesn't work that way. I'm not going to get into that today, but there are there are immutable safeguards against that. It, it would require more computing power than you can possibly imagine to try to overtake something like the Bitcoin blockchain. So... That's why it has value in the first place, because I can send you something that's guaranteed to be a unique thing that we can then get a value against on how it exchanges and trades with other currencies. And just like we can put basically a public and private key for like one Bitcoin on a blockchain, we can put anything that's data on a blockchain, including the video you're watching right now. So what Library does, lbry.tv, and then again, the other side of it, and the one I use all the time day-to-day -day, is Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E.com. This video now gets tokenized, and that means if YouTube decides they don't like it someday and takes it away, it will still be there. In fact, even if Library decides they don't like it, it will still be there because it's now on a blockchain. Well, not only do you have that available to you with Odyssey, and that's why you should be watching this video on Odyssey, not on YouTube, where censorship doesn't happen, right, over on Odyssey, you can actually earn a little bit of what's called LBC coin. This is library slash Odyssey's 
native cryptocurrency. It's trading somewhere over 10 cents, somewhere between 10 and 20 cents a coin. And if you like what I'm doing, you can tip me in it. If you are a creator, you can have your content there and people can tip you in it. And it is a great way to do things. And all you do is sign up and you have a wallet and it just freaking works. It's that simple. There's no catch. There's no tricks here. There is a link in the video notes down there. If you're not already using Odyssey, please use that link. Yes, I'll earn a little bit of LBC coin myself. I'll earn eight LBC coins for referring you. But even if you don't use my link, you should be using Odyssey. If you are a creator, if you have a YouTube channel with, you know, a thousand followers or so and some content on it that you value, and you're not Odyssey, you hate money. You hate money and you hope someday that your content is taken down. Because I don't care what your content is, we've learned that people have their content taken off of YouTube for things they didn't even do on YouTube. For things they said in a tweet 12 years ago. Right? So you should have this account just as a backup for your content. And that's one way you can get into cryptocurrency with no money out of your pocket. You just start using Odyssey and earn little bits of cryptocurrency. And later on, you can change it into some other currency or you can just hold on to it. If you're a creator, it's a great way. Right now, I make more money in a month on Odyssey with about 5,000 followers than I make on YouTube with 50,000 followers. So there's one. Two, a new search engine called PreSearch, P-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H.org, PreSearch.org. If you go down in the video notes, again, I have a referral link. I can earn a little bit of pre, but you use PreSearch. And you just make it your default search engine instead of Google, which spies on you. And it is a blockchain-driven search engine. And every time you run a search, you'll you'll earn 0.25 pre-coins. You can earn up to four a day. Don't game the system. They monitor it. So, like, just use it for your regular searches. It works really well. If you don't find the result you're looking for, switch over to a different engine. And you'll see you'll, when you sign up, you'll have an account. There'll be a balance, and you'll earn cryptocurrency in the form of pre. It takes a while to build enough to do anything up with. I think it's trading at like seven cents a pre or something like that. But you're going to use search engines anyway. Might as well use one that doesn't spy on you and gives you money. So this is another way that you can do it. You can also use the Brave browser, and that's a way that you can earn cryptocurrency called BAT, B-A-T. Those are three cryptocurrencies that you can use, you can earn just by using the services. Now, somebody asked me, how do these people not go broke doing this? They all have ways they monetize, primarily through advertising. And they also, when they created their crypto, they reserved some for themselves. They're using their own crypto to make these payments. And then they're accepting their own crypto in return for services. So it's kind of like a company issuing stock and then using the stock as currency. This is the way it works. So don't worry about it. And well, what if they stop doing it? Then they stop doing it. Take it while you can get it. Next up, now, you're only going to get little bits doing this. Unless you are, if you are a big-time producer and you have a lot of followers and you can migrate them over to, to Odyssey Library, you can do really well really fast because they provide you uh, not just tips from your users, but every person you bring on board with an affiliate link, you can get a little bit of library for. So uh, I earned an awful lot that way in the very beginning. Now I earn most of it as tips from my audience. But again, for most people, this is a small, easy way to start getting some cryptocurrency. Most people, if you want to get into cryptocurrency, you want to buy cryptocurrency. And most people want to kind of start out with Bitcoin. It's been around the longest. It is volatile and up and down, but it's dramatically stable in staying power over time. If you want to buy 
Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency and you want to pay with dollars, uh, bank account, credit card, whatever, you're going to have to do something called KYC. That's know your customer. The easiest place to get started buying cryptocurrency for money is Coinbase. Again, there's a link in the video notes down there. Yes, I will earn $10 in, in, in Bitcoin. If you use my link, sign up and, and, and fund your account with at least $100 in Bitcoin, not counting the fees. You have to have $100 actually funded into your account. I, I appreciate using my link, but you'll get $10 too. You'll get, so you fund it with $100, you end up with $110 in Bitcoin. To do that, you're going to have to give them a bank account number. You're going to have to give them a credit card. I'm sorry, not a credit card, your, your driver's license, right? Well, I don't want to do that. Okay, then you can't buy cryptocurrency online anyway safely for fiat currency, i.e. United States dollars or the currency of your nation. Some countries maybe don't have that for their citizens as a requirement. Some do. The United States does. Most of you guys that listen to me are in the U.S., so I'm speaking from that perspective. If you don't want to do this, I understand. But if you want to buy for, you want to take a bank account and wire money in, or you want to take credit card from your wallet and you want to buy cryptocurrency, you have to do this. It's not because the exchanges want to screw you like some of you seem to think. It's because the government says if you are going to take fiat currency for cryptocurrency and sell it, you have to do KYC, which is know your customer. Basically, they have to verify that you are who you say you are, and this is under a lot of different auspices, but chiefly among them is to prevent money laundering. And as much as I hate the state, if you could just wire money willy-nilly at any amount from a bank account, convert it into cryptocurrency, and then send it anywhere you want, it would be a really great way to launder money. It really would. Okay? Especially you pop it through a couple exchanges, change it into some altcoins and back. Like you can make it disappear and reappear somewhere else, and there'd be no way to trace it using things like privacy coins like R, which we'll get to in a second. So I understand why they're doing it. I don't I hate the state at all levels, and I don't give a shit if they don't get their money. But this is why. If you want to be in business, have a building, do business in the United States and not have people come to your place of business, point guns in your face, handcuff you, and take you to club fucking fed. You have to do this. Coinbase is not fucking you for fuck's sake. I hate to be this way, but I'm tired of hearing it. They're not fucking you by requiring this. They're keeping themselves out of federal prison. You don't want to do KYC. I'm going to tell you how to do that. If you want to take money from your bank account, wire it somewhere, you must do this. Okay? The way to not do this is to sell something of value to people who will pay you with cryptocurrency. If you do that, you can completely avoid KYC. It doesn't mean that you're completely clean and not reporting your income and not paying taxes on it, but you, if, you, if you're smart about how you do it, you probably could be. I'm just going to say that. So, if you don't offer anything of value, you don't have anything you sell to take cryptocurrency for, and you want to buy it, you got to do KYC. If you do take money that way, or if you've already bought it and you already got it in hand, you want to be able to do things like convert it to other cryptocurrencies and things like that, and you don't want to have your identity verified to do it, there are numerous options. I will give you two today, both of which I have links to down in the video notes. The first one is called Coinex, C-O-I-N-E-X. This is a no-KYC exchange, giant I-F, if. If you want to take Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, whatever currency you have, 
deposit it to your exchange account, convert it into something else, and move it back off, and you don't need to do more than $10,000 a day on and off the exchange, you can do it with nothing but a phone number to verify your transactions at for, for security, and an email address, and a name. And a name could be anything you want it to be. All right? Just saying. It could be completely okay. KYC. If you want to be able to move more than $10,000 a day, or if you want to, again, be able to wire money from your bank account and buy Bitcoin for cash, you have to do KYC. Not because CoinX is fucking you, because CoinX and the people that run it don't want to go to fucking federal prison for violating federal money laundering laws and regulations. I'm not for them, but I certainly, you know, because I've, I've tried to do things before in the past, and I won't get into today, but one, I wanted to set up this community and do some things that people put money in and get money back out of it, whatever, and someone from the FTC reached out to me and said, if you do that, they're going to put you in federal prison. Don't do that. And, and this person was a fan and liked what I was doing. He was like, if you go forward with this, you're going to end up in federal prison. And you know what people said to me? You should do it anyway, Jack. Don't let them intimidate you. You're not the one that has to go to Club Fed. You're not the one that has to go get a big giant boyfriend wandering around with you and trading you for cigarettes. I'm not going to Club Fed, and neither are they, and I don't blame them. But you can do no KYC if you do it that way. Additionally, you can do it because you still need a phone number for CoinEx. And there's ways you can kind of finagle that, but phone numbers can be traced back to you. There's another exchange, and this is a non-traditional exchange. This is a new the new exchanges that are going to become dominant in the world, in my opinion. It's called a DEX exchange or decentralized exchange. This exchange, there's lots of them, but the one that I really like right now is called Polarity. Polarity.exchange. Again, there's a link in the video notes, okay? And they use Tether, which is the stable coin, as their reserve currency. So anything you would deposit there, if you want to turn it into something else, first you would trade it to USDT. Tether, a stable coin, and then you would buy another coin. I can't get into trading specifics today, but there is an advantage there because you basically have one side of the equation doesn't move. If you're buying Litecoin with Bitcoin and you set a limit order, I want to pay this much Bitcoin for this much Litecoin type of situation, well, the Bitcoin side and the Litecoin side both move. If you move into a stable coin, it makes it very simple to understand I've bid X dollars per coin. Now, what makes a DEX exchange different is it is a direct relationship with just an intermediary piece of software between two individuals. When you say, I want to buy Litecoin uh, for 180 bucks and I want 10 of them basically by how much you're spending, there ha when the person is offering it for that and you're next in line, the money actually changes between y'all and never goes into an exchange account. That's what I like about DEX exchanges. The wallet, right, so they say not your keys, not your coins. That means you should possess all your keys. If you're on CoinX, if you're on Coinbase, if you're on Bittrex, you're on any of these things, and they say, you know, in your your spot account, you have $500 worth of Bitcoin or $5,000 worth of Bitcoin. You have access to it. You don't actually have it. They have it, and until you withdraw it, you don't really completely control it. That's why I say don't leave your money on exchanges for long periods of time. Do the exchange and get it off to a wallet. All right? Okay. So, when it comes to something like polarity, you actually have what could best be described as a cloud-based wallet. You have the passphrase, the, the backup phrase to, to restore it. You have the public and the private key, and they do not. 
They could not look at an account and tell you who owns it unless you gave them extra information. They wanted, because I had them on the show and they wanted to reward me with some tokens, they had to have me give them an address so they could send me tokens because they couldn't find out what account I had. Even knowing all my information, they couldn't look up my account. So they can't give it to the government because they don't know what it is. It is completely anonymous. It uses Google or some other third-party authenticator app to provide security instead of a, and, and an email address, which can be any email address you create. Like, this is my email address for things I don't need you to see at ProtonMail.com, right? So you can keep complete anonymity with that. So there's all these different layers. But again, what it comes down to is, do you want to buy it for dollars? If you want to buy it for dollars, as a U.S. citizen, you're going to do KYC. And I'm sorry, I don't like it. I'm just telling you the way that it is. Last, once you buy cryptocurrency, etc., and you want to hold it, Now, if you're holding 500 bucks, I wouldn't even worry about this, right? When you start getting to holding thousands of dollars and more in cryptocurrency, you do not want to hold that cryptocurrency on an exchange. Exchanges occasionally get hacked. Exchanges can have their, their customer service record subpoenaed. There's all kinds of risks associated with an exchange. So once you do whatever you had it there for, you remove it. And I have been recommending the Jax wallet, J-A-X-X, at jax.io. Be careful if you're an Android user. Apparently there's some freaking scams on the Google Play Store that are fake Jax downloads that ask for your seed phrase and steal your money. So go get your Jax wallet if you're going to get it from Jax.io, not off the Google Play Store. Apple seems safe. Um, however, I want to say this. If I was starting today, because it has more options as far as assets you can hold, I would probably use the Coinami wallet. And I'll put links to Jax and Coinami below as well. Those are not referral links. I just try to disclose everything. Uh, Jax is going to come out with some kind of partner program soon. I'm pre-approved for it. Uh, but right now, I don't have one for either one of those. They're just straight-up links. So hopefully this helps you get started. This is not hard. I, I've heard from a lot of people, and this is a really long Miyagi Mornings video. I'm sorry about that, but I just I want to cover this. I want to have one to just go here, right? Okay. Um, This is not as hard as people make it out to be. I've heard from a lot of people that said, I finally did it, and the reason I was held up is I did not believe it would work or didn't believe it was a good idea. I thought it was too hard. I didn't want, you know, it seemed too complicated. If you can set up a PayPal account and you can send money with PayPal, there is nothing that prevents you from buying some cryptocurrency and putting it in your wallet. It's a little bit different. Please use small amounts at first so you don't make a mistake with a lot amount of money. But this isn't hard. And this is something that you should develop the skill set for and the and the uh, utility for into the future. This is the future of monetary systems in the world. And with that, we'll wrap up, and I'll come back tomorrow with a totally different subject. Hey, guys and gals out in interwebs land, welcome to Miyagi Mornings Thursday edition 50, I don't know, nine, I don't know what episode this is. It doesn't matter. It's, it's Thursday and it is February the 25th. So it's that edition and you can look in the title to see what number it is since I can't remember it. What I do know is what we're going to talk about today. This comes from a question on the MeWe thread for Miyagi Mornings. It comes from Sue and Sue says, if you had a decent soil situation on your property, 
What type of garden would you plant? I would love to have raised beds, but I don't want the expense of buying soil when I think mine is more than adequate. I grew up watching my grandparents rototill a big square and plant, but that is, but is that the best way to begin an in-ground garden today? What are the alternatives? Okay, so let's separate that because those are two totally different questions. Should I have raised beds? Should I rototill a big plot and just plant it? Let's start off with the raised bed question. There's two reasons that somebody puts in a raised bed. Because you need it or kind of need it or because you want it. So let's start off with need. If you live somewhere where your soil really, really, really sucks, it's a quick way to onboard to good quality soil because whatever you put in the bed, you have. If you live in a place like I do where your soil depth is like that and then you're on rock, right, uh, well, or you're, you know, maybe you're, you're putting a community garden in, in a, in a parking lot, cause that happens. Well, you, you're in a situation where you, you, you have to, right? If you're like me and you have a bunch of these little critters running around and you don't really want to fence them out, so not only do you have the shallow soils, but you have ducks that will go in and eat everything, you know, generally I found that about 30 inches of height keeps ducks out most of the time anyway, enough that it, they're not a problem. So, there can be reasons. Another reason could be you have a really, really high water table to where your plants are actually getting their roots anaerobic in the garden. So there's some reasons that you might do this. Another reason would be this is more of a want than a need, but it can become a need because your significant other, your HOA, whatever, doesn't like an in-ground garden and up above the ground, defined raised bed makes somebody else happy. So you're adapting to a social design consideration. Like those are all reasons that you might need or sort of need a raised bed. The other reason you might need or, or want a raised bed would just be that you want the aesthetics or you want the convenience of having this very clear delineation that this is lawn and this is garden and maybe putting some paths in between them and things like that. You can do that without a raised bed that's contained, but it can be a little bit more difficult to maintain, right? However, let me say this, if I had really great soil, or even if I had just deep soil, I probably wouldn't build a confined raised bed with the added cost of the materials and labor that go into doing that. Uh, I would probably just plant in the ground. For many, many years as a young man, I, I took care of my grandfather's garden, and we had about a quarter acre of garden, and we probably gardened half of that because the other half was pathways. All we did, all we did, were they were 25-foot by 4-foot beds, and we just dug them every year. We never rototilled. Had I known what I know now as a young man, I would have saved myself an ass load of work, and I would have just tarped the beds at the end of every season and pulled the tarps away, and I would have had a lot less grass to edge out. The way that I did that back then is I would take a stake with a string wrapped around it, put it in the ground, unwrap it, and make a nice straight line and use a tool called an edger, which is basically just a, a flat, it's basically a, a hoe on edge, and I would edge and then double dig the whole bed. And I did a lot, a lot of digging like that, incorporate some compost and things like that, and then plant directly into the ground. And our garden was fantastic. We also lived in a place with incredible soils, one of the most fertile parts of Pennsylvania, in some bottom land where one erosion occurred elsewhere, it ended up settling in on us. So uh, it was really easy to do that way. It was also a lot of work to dig every year. Um, I can't tell you whether you should do kind of like weed blocker everywhere but the beds, or you should just do beds and just try to keep the weeds. Like, you got to figure that out for yourself. 
What I will tell you is rototilling every year is not what I would recommend. There's a couple problems with rototilling. Let's talk about what it does well, and that is if there's any sods or anything up on the top that have encroached the bed, it's a real easy mechanical way to, to get rid of that. And I don't have problem with using rototilling for establishment. We use it once, the rototiller goes away, it gets loaned out to friends, it gets done another project, but we don't till anymore. The two big problems with tilling is, one, we, we basically kill the soil life when we rototill, which is why it works. You know, for a period, tilling works and it declines in how well it works over time. Right? So we kill all the critters and basically we're making an on-the-fly compost, which sounds like a good thing, except that every time the soil begins to restructure and begins to get into the natural system that we're looking for, it's another season and we till it again. And we eventually kind of burn out the microbes up in the root layer that we're planting into. we got really great mechanically defined structure, but you'll find that every year it takes more work, not less work, to till. Because since there's no, since the life, there's life there, right? It'll come back, but it never gets to truly establish. It doesn't maintain that crumby soil structure that we're looking for. The other thing is, so your tiller only goes so deep, right? So if your tiller reaches down this far, what do you think happens right below where it reaches? What happens when something goes thump, 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 thump on earth? It compacts. So you're actually, every time you till it, you're more, you're creating this upper fluffy layer and you're compacting a hard pan beneath your soil. So what's the solution? The solution is we use something like a broad fork to simply loosen it and we pull out any weeds that have encroached. We tarp in the off season so that we don't have encroachment of, you know, Bermuda grass, which is the Satan spawn. Or maybe we cover crop in the interim. And, and those are all valid ways to do things. And, like, one of the greatest cover crops you can use for this, it's not going to give you a bunch of nitrogen or anything, but it's going to give you great root mass. It's going to feed earthworms. It's going to be real easy to deal with. And it's stupid cheap. Annual ryegrass. Since it's annual ryegrass, it's going to die. It's going to summer kill. And you can, you know, when you go to plant in your spring, you can take a scythe and just drop it. You can take a weed whacker and drop it. You can take a roller and roll it flat like a tatami mat and then just plant into it. And some of it will come back, but your, your vegetables are going to grow much more aggressively. And as they get into the peak of the season, as the soil really warms, the ryegrass kind of, it's done, right? And if you roll it, it's great because if you, and you don't have to have a really high-end roller. Like, I mean, you literally could have a one of those blue 30-gallon barrels with, you know, half full of water and throw it on the bed and just roll it, right? Because when you bend the stock, you could walk it flat, right? Once you bend the stock, you wound it, and it kind of just dies there, and it's perfect mulch. You can maintain your garden in a clover situation if your climate will allow for it. So we put down something like uh, New Zealand or Dutch white clover, and at the highest that stuff gets is about like that. You can always cut it back a little bit if you need to. And basically, wherever you want to plant, you just pull some out, make a hole, and plant your plants or your seeds down into it. That's a very Fukuoka thing. There's a lot of ways to, to do this, and you have to determine based on how much you want to garden, how much you want to produce, how much maintenance you want to do, how much work you want to do, how you want to do things. And above all, 
what you want it to look like. But I really think that people need to understand that raised beds as we think of them, because there's two ways to do raised beds, really. Well, there's hundreds, but there's two main ways. One is non-defined by additional material, which means we just basically make a raised bed. But there's no two-by-fours, there's no timbers, there's no cinder block, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's it's a technique where as we bring in amendments, we just keep, we make these little hills and we plant onto them. If you're going to do that, it is really, 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 really a good idea, number one, to put down some sort of weed block in your rows, at least initially, uh, to mulch your rows heavily with wood mulch. And when I say heavily, I mean deep, right? So that maybe your bed doesn't even look like there's that much to it um, because you want to control those rows uh, from from having encroachment of weeds and things like that. The other thing is, so now your wood chips break down over a season, and then next season you just take all of your broken down beautiful wood chips and put that onto your bed as mulch and put down another row. See, so now we're just dropping wood chips and fo we're folding and dropping and folding and dropping. It's a very, very effective way to do things. If you look at what they've done at the Australian PRI, that's exactly how the gardens are maintained out there. They have chicken tractors going around producing uh, compost and then they have raised beds that are not contained, right? They're just maintained like that. This is the thing. It's a very large garden there, but they also have what? A shitload of people that work for free because they come there to learn. The, the beauty of a defined raised bed is it creates such a mechanism of control that as soon as you see anything growing inside that defined perimeter, it's not supposed to be there. Yank. Yank. And this is what you'll find about raised beds. And it's something we're going to talk about more in the future here. Um, if you make a fairly deep raised bed, you know, something in the neighborhood of 10 inches or deeper, it will cost you more money to fill it unless you have some source of fill, then it will cost you to build it. The construction cost is not that much. Landscape timbers are stupid cheap. Please stop worrying about, it's treated wood. It's. I don't want to get into that today. Just if you're worried about the chemicals in a landscape, now not a railroad tie, that's creosote. In a landscape timber, I suggest you stop breathing because the toxins that you're taking in Exceed the toxins if you extracted them from that, and they don't. It doesn't work that way. I'll let it go there, but um, but in general, the cost of of the fill exceeds the cost of the bed itself. But here's another thing to think about: if you just want a defined perimeter, you can put in a, a fairly low raised bed, six inches. Uh, you can come into that, kill your grass layer by whatever you solarize it with plastic. Cut it out, you know, sod cut it, you know, whatever you want to do. You can put down a layer or two of cardboard soaked, and then that six inches, you can fill it too. Just fill it two inches. It doesn't matter. The plant doesn't care that there's a, you know, a space there. In fact, it might actually be beneficial. It might be more water-wise. And then every year, as you're adding mulch, as you're adding compost, you're slowly building soil up, and you have space to do it with. That's another way to approach it. I'd put in 30-inch raised beds. I don't put 30 inches of fill in them. I put about 26 inches of fill in them. I leave myself four inches to grow soil over the years. So there's a lot of ways to cut those costs. It comes down to personal preference, and it also comes down to budget and size. The bigger the garden, 
the more expense there is in constructing raised beds. The smaller the garden, it's so cheap it doesn't matter. If you're putting in, you know, if your plan is I want to put in four, four by eight beds, I'd probably build some sort of raised bed just because of the convenience. This is another thing to think about. Stacking time, we talk about a lot in permaculture. So we plant way more trees than we need in a space, and then we take certain ones out as the forest emerges. That's one way to think of stacking in time. There's another way to think of stacking in time, though, is stacking in human time. The human. The older you get, the less of this is comfortable to do, and the harder it is to bend all the way to the ground. So if we build a raised bed, you know, we can build a raised bed at like my 30 inch raised beds are really easy to work on. And I put two by sixes on them to make benches. So when I'm working in that bed, guess what I do? I plop my ass right on that two by six bench and I can work my garden without bending over at all. And when you're doing a lot of planting all, that's convenient too. So that's another reason you might want versus need raised beds, but maybe you want it now but maybe you need it later. And if you build raised beds correctly, you can always add courses down the road. So even if we use a really rough construction material, but will last longer than a human lifetime, like let's say cinder block. And let's say we go in and we put a single row of cinder blocks in for our raised bed. Maybe we even paint them so they look pretty or whatever. And we get that raised bed going for a couple of years and a few years down the road, you know, now we can spread out the expense. We can come in and put a second course we should really think about the fact that we might want to do it in the future so that they're designed to be staggered. We put a second course in, and we start building up. And over years, the bed might go up to three courses of cinder block. I think they're eight inches, so that would be 24 inches. Trust me, a 24-inch high-raised bed is much more comfortable to work as you age and your back has issues and stuff like that than one that's four inches or straight flat on the ground. But I, <clears throat> I would shy away from putting, if on a large install, I would shy away from going with raised beds everywhere. I really would. And if you look at any of the large market gardeners or things like that, they don't do it because it's cost prohibitive. Except, one more before I go today, there is always the opportunity to source your raised bed material very, very inexpensively. If I had a property that was covered in black locust trees... It's an incredibly long, little last hundred year timber. You know, and if you have a bunch of them that are about like the bowl woods about that big around, man, a chainsaw and some spikes and you're knocking out raised beds cheap. And then even if, again, even if we're not completely filling them, they can be built up over time. And I know you're thinking, but black locusts is this allopathic. It's, it's very mildly allopathic compared to most allopathic trees. And, this is something else that you need to understand. When you're talking about allopathic trees, it's generally the green stems, the seeds, and the husks of anything they produce that's allopathic. Much more allopathic than black locust would be. And that, that allopathic means it actually suppresses the growth of, of other plants. Maybe not all, but some. So the juglone species like black walnut, pecan, and all are highly allopathic. Um, but their lumber's not. If you build, I, I don't know why you would, like the black walnut is such a valuable timber, but if you built a raised bed out of black walnut timbers, it's not going to be allopathic. If you mulch with black walnut nut husks and leaves, you will kill 90% of what you do that with. Um, and also realize nature, nature has ways of dealing with a lot of this. We had two huge black walnut trees just outside of our garden in Pennsylvania. 
never was a problem. Of course, we didn't put the leaves in the bed. So, anyway, long one again today. Thought that was going to be a quick, quick one, but uh, it wasn't. So, anyway, hope you guys learned some things today. Keep them coming. Remember, me, we is the place to tell me what we want to hear. Take care, guys. Hey, guys and gals in interwebs land. Welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 60. I think that's right anyway. Uh, today's question, again, coming from MeWe, and if you want to participate in the discussion about what's coming next on Miyagi Mornings, the best way is MeWe. You can get on over to MeWe, you can friend me up, and then if you look at my profile, there's a sticky on the top, and it, it, it's where all of these suggestions have come from this week, anyway. Uh, today I had somebody ask about podcasting. This is something I get from time to time, and I, I don't talk about it a huge amount, because I know only a segment of my audience will be interested in this, but it's also the kind of thing that I do want to help people with. Uh, podcasting has been very good to me. It has given my life a sense of direction and purpose. I have always been a teacher at heart. In fact, there is never a time in my life other than maybe fishing or hunting where I feel as good as I do when I'm teaching and I know someone's learning. It's one thing to teach. It's another thing like when you actually hear from a student or you see a student where you're actually in person and you watch the world open. It, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. And podcasting, even when it's done for entertainment primarily, like a sports podcast or something, it should still be educational. And so even though this is not the question it, 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 it was asked, and I'll get to that in a second, my first piece of advice would be that if you want to be successful as a podcaster, Find in your heart the heart of a teacher. And no matter how you bring it, no matter what the subject is, again, it can be primarily uh, an entertainment, you know, but it's all a little bit of edutainment, right? Uh, bring, bring that sincere desire to serve your audience with you. And I, I don't think anyone will be able to do it. Like, like I say, anyone can do anything if they try hard enough. And I believe that to a degree, but I think that there is something, there's some people that they, they, they're teachers. And there's some people that are entertainers. And I think if you have either one as a gift, you can, you can do this. If you don't, you're going to have to work to develop it. Just like you have to work to develop your arms to do pull-ups, right? There's just no way around it. Either you have this natural innate ability or you don't. And if you, if you don't, you may not love podcasting. If you don't love it, you're not going to stick with it. So that's going to, shape my advice going forward. That's why I opened with it. So I said, well, what do I host with and how do I get into iTunes? Those were the two primary questions. How do I host a podcast? Understand when it comes to hosting a podcast, there's actually two sides to that. They can be in the same place, but there's two sides to it. There's hosting a website. My opinion is 2021. You can buy domains for $10 a year. If you're gonna If you're going to be serious enough to have a podcast... Screw any of the podcast hosting services and where you, you don't have to have a website, you don't have anything, you just do all your stuff there. No. No. We live in a world of censorship. We live in a world of cancel culture. And if you're going to be a podcaster, you're going to speak your mind or you're not going to be successful. No matter what you're talking about, you will have to be authentic to be successful. And if you are authentic today, it is only a matter of time before you offend somebody who's part of the Twitter mob and the woke culture and whatever. You can be woke as fuck, honestly. And you will still end up, the woke are eating their own now, right? So you need to have control. So to me, you should self-host. Now, 
I run a dedicated server that costs me about $700 a month. I run an enterprise. So I run an enterprise class hosting solution. I have to have something, a box that can handle being slammed a quarter million times every 48 hours. About 48 hours after an episode goes out, about a quarter million people have downloaded it. You don't need that. You get started, you're not going to have any problems. I ran my hosting on a, a website called, or a, a provider called HostGator, who was great back then. And I ran it for about two and a half years. And it worked fine for two and a half years. I became successful. I started drawing over a terabyte of data in bandwidth a month. And they said, well, it's unlimited bandwidth, but you're causing other problems because it was, it, I hit a ceiling where they went, no more. And they kicked me off. They didn't work with me. Like initially some tech bonehead just shut me off. And I'm like, you can't do that. I had to, I was on the phone till like three in the morning. Um, but knowing that now I would just kind of monitor it. And as you start to, at that point, I was already totally happy to go get a dedicated server and spend more money. I had enough revenue coming in. This is a problem you shouldn't worry about when this is a self-correcting problem. If you're that successful, you have plenty of money to buy better hosting. So I would start out with somebody like HostGator, Bluehost, somebody like that is your host. And I would host your own podcast audio files in addition to your website. For a website, I would use WordPress. And I would budget about, even if you're just getting started, I would budget about 500 bucks to find someone that you know is competent with WordPress basic design. You say, I don't need any bullshit. I just need like a, 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 a basic logo which you can make with like you know logo online logo builders and give it to this person and say I want this to look like a basic website right and have a decent header and footer and all and configure it. you can do it yourself or you can pay somebody to do it but I would budget you know with design and layout and everything about $500 very good WordPress developers build sites all the time for 4 to $10,000 um, that includes things like developing your branding messages and all of that and, and full funnels of, of marketing. You don't need that starting out. You just need to get your feet wet and see if this is right for you. So I would keep the cost way down. You can get hosting for a couple hundred dollars a year and about 500 bucks in design, and you're up and running. As far as submitting your site to iTunes, just get on Google and go, how do I submit my podcast to iTunes? And there'll be a thing called a feed. And since you have a blog, it will be in there. Just click the feed and you'll submit that and fill out a form and, and then you'll get approved. You need to have an episode or two published so that there's something there for them to get and to analyze and decide whether or not they want to let you in. I've never heard of anybody not getting into iTunes unless their, you know, their podcast was like, you know, how to kill children with, with puppies or something. Uh, so it's, they're not real restrictive on it yet. It is very important. Somebody asked me how important is it to be in iTunes. It's very important to be in iTunes. To this day, iTunes is still my number one distribution platform. Every time I see this cancel culture shit, I cringe a little bit and think, man, if I get taken down off of iTunes, if I get deplatformed, it's going to hurt me. I also feel like I've developed a relationship with my audience where if it happened, they would just switch over to another podcast service. Now, here's the second reason. It's not just that they're the biggest. There's a second reason it's very important to get on iTunes. A lot of the other podcast syndication services, they use iTunes as their filler. So once you're in iTunes, you automatically get in there. Or some of them, like, you can look up and they'll say, like, put your iTunes, you know, ID in here or whatever. And so you'll end up on dozens of syndication services, um, podcatchers and things like that, that are less used. Um, but... 
they're used enough you want to be there. And by getting into iTunes, you kind of just automatically get into a lot of them. Then you can just look up podcast syndication services, podcast apps, things like that. Uh, give it about a week after you're in iTunes and then look those up and see if you're in there. And if you're not, individually submit to them. Get on as many of them as you can. I want to finish up with a little bit on gear. Uh, if you go into like setting up a podcast, you will find huge tutorials that will involve you spending thousands of dollars of money, usually with the person that wrote it up or their, through their affiliate links, which I don't have a problem with. I'm a capitalist. I believe in making money. I also don't believe in investing heavily in something when you don't need to until you at least know that it's going to be a thing that's going to work out for you guys. I mean, really. So I want to show you after almost 13 years of podcasting, an audience of a quarter million people, what I use the podcast with as far as a microphone. Here it is right here. And that, that little microphone right there, that microphone's the one you're hearing through right now. This is it goes into the computer instead of the phone. This is a Samsung uh, CO1U. Uh, the first one I had I used for about seven years before it blew up. It was given to me for free by a listener who was trying to support me early on and, and make my audio better. And so when it stopped working, I just bought another one. I don't think they quite make this exact same one, but this is basically a USB condenser mic. It just has a USB cord, plugs into a USB port on a computer, and it works. Unless you're going to be in studio with 10 other people, you know, doing mixing boards and stuff, you don't need anything more than that. This will give you FM quality radio. It's an audio podcast. You're, you're not, you know, you know uh, Eddie Van Halen ripping on, a, on an axe. You don't need high fidelity. I have never had a complaint about my audio since I switched to this microphone unless something else went wrong. Okay. So I would not overindulge in gear. I would not try to make 300, you know, different things all work together. I'd get a basic microphone. If you are going to do it with a partner and you're going to be in the same place at the same time to podcast, I think that's wasteful. I'll tell you why in a second. But then I would get some two basic mics and a mixing board. And I don't have a recommendation for what because I don't do that. If I had a person, I was good. In fact, I have people. I have, I have the Survival Podcast and I have the Goose Podcast, right? Unloose the Goose. We do that with like eight professional podcasters. Every every person in that show is a professional podcaster. I mean, they make a living to some degree from podcasting. We have never podcasted in the same room at the same time. We use Zoom. Uh, I use I use Skype and Skype Recorder for my individual guests. If I was doing a podcast with one other person, that's what I would do. If you get more than that, you use Zoom or you use StreamYard or something like that. It's it, it's just much easier. My advice on podcasting with partners First, I'm just going to say don't. Overall, don't. You start your podcast, okay? And if you have people that want to podcast with you, let them come on your show. That way you stay in control. You make your own decisions. And, you know, I, I'm big on frequency. If you're doing less than one a week, you might as well not bother. No one's going to give you their time. Now, maybe in the beginning you're just figuring it out. Maybe you don't quite get one done a week. I do one a day. There's a reason. People vest their time in you when you vest your time in them but a minimum weekly frequency. So now you're doing your podcast with Joe, and you and Joe are great friends. But Thursday's when you do your podcast, and Joe's wife gets pissed off that he's spending too much time away from home, and he can't do it Thursday. And now you don't do a podcast. See how that works? So if you're going to use a partner, I would just set up a way to do it remotely so that you don't have to be in studio together. Unless you're, like, I have friends like Doc Bones and Arsami, they're a married couple. Well, of course they do it together because they're there together all the time, right? Um, but other than that, I would do it remotely. And uh, definitely on the frequency thing, man, minimum weekly, and I would say at least twice a week is really a lot better. And uh, then 
Understand that your friends, I'm sorry, your listeners, as you develop them, will help you. They'll help you a lot. And so if you do decide you want to upgrade your gear, well, then what you can do is say, hey, I'm going to introduce this this method of monetizing my podcast membership, uh, discount buyers, whatever it is. You know, whatever you're doing, you're selling gear, merch, whatever. You say, you know, I need $400 to buy this new gear. If I if I can make a profit of 800 bucks on this uh, this this revenue in this next month, then what I'll do is I'll I'll invest half of it back into just audio gear and the rest you know for myself or for other parts of the show or what have you. And you'll find if you get good at podcasting and you kind of hit a momentum stream where you start building listeners really fast, it will be your second to fourth year that you will have the most amount of leverage with your audience when they're excited that they're building it with you. On some levels, I have a lot more power now as far as social capital with my audience because it's bigger. But there's a magic, folks. When that when that podcast is a baby, when it's like in the toddler years, there's a magic in that where your listeners feel like you haven't made it yet and they want you to. And, and when you hit that, I'm not talking about extracting from your audience. I'm always talking about giving them more. But when you hit that, cherish it. Cherish it because it is like raising a child. Like you'll still love your kid when they're 10 or when they're 20 or when they're 30 or when they're 50 or when they're 60 if you're still around. But it'll, you'll never have that magic of when they're, you know, a one and two year old running around learning things for the first time. And that's what you, that's what a business is like. But especially I've done a lot of businesses in my time podcasting. That's where it really is just in that magic state. So make sure you, you make the most of that. And, uh, I mean, my last piece of advice is, again, on the hosting. There's a lot of places you can host your audio files. It seems like a good deal because it's free. You know, there's like Libsyn and Blueberry, or it's very inexpensive. You are taking what may become your life's work, and you're putting it in somebody else's hands, and you're giving them the power to make it go away. No. No, and I, I had so many people, why don't you use Blog Talk Radio? Why don't you use Libsyn? Why don't you use this? Why don't you? And I'm talking in the very beginning when I only had a few hundred people listening. And my, my answer to that was always, no way, no how, no chance. I am going to control my content. I'm going to either buy shared space on a server when I'm getting started. And once I pass that, I'm going to buy rack space. I have a server that lives in a co-location facility, but it is my box. I paid for it. I bought it. I pay a guy to administer it. Um, we have backups of everything, and I'm hosting with a provider that is pretty immune to the woke bullshit. And, you know, you can't always be 100% on that, but, man, that box needs to be yours if you get to that level. I, I, I'll just be blunt. When it comes to services like Libsyn or SoundCloud or whatever, fuck that. No, because if you do this and it becomes for you what you want it to become, the last thing you want is somebody else able to shut it off. With that, hope you enjoyed this week. I will be back next week with more on Miyagi Mornings. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at the survivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. 
All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series.